law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 121 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, May 17th, 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Allison, we have a lot of news today, including finally the final report of the four-year Durham investigation into the origins of the Russia investigation and the House Republican report on the Bidens. (laughs) Yeah, so to speak, right? All of that is in quotes. Uh, and we have the former Manhattan prosecutor Pomerantz's testimony to House Republicans, uh, along with the Fonnie Willis response to Trump's lawsuit to quash her special purpose grand jury report and subsequent indictments. But first, we need to thank our new patrons. And Pete, we have so many new patrons this week, and I think it's all it all has to do with your your very blue rant montage that our, our editors so artfully put together this weekend from our bonus episode. So uh, I appreciate that. I had so much fun doing that bonus episode this weekend. So thanks to our patrons. If you want to sign up to be a patron, you can do it at patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod. That's A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D. And we have so many, we're going to split them up. Here's the first little bit. Thanks to Mark Krause, uh, somebody who said, I was left unsupervised. Jane Dittmar, Jennifer, Sean Todd, KB, Erica Gott, Don Schamberger, Margot N.H., Lisa Rollison, Jerry Goodridge, Brenda Piniella Rouse High, and Ali Salinas. So thanks to our first group of new patrons. And uh, Pete, why don't we kick this off uh, with the uh, dun-dun-dun Durham report. <laughs> 300 pages of uh, of a sad man crying. Uh, I don't really know how else to put it. No, I don't either. Look, I mean, four years, truly four years, more than twice the time it took Mueller to complete his, you know, dozens upon dozens of indictment and, you know, countless, well, not countless, but seven or eight convictions in half the time, John Durham- 37 finally- entities and individuals <laughs> charged, 199 <laughs> crimes- Right, and you know, that sounds foreign, like a, that sounds like some sort of disinformation vodka. agents <laughs> in St. Petersburg working as contractors for the government of Russia to sow disinformation to attack our elections in 2016. All of that in more than twice the time, uh, John Durham comes out with a you know less than 100 pages. What is that? 95 pages a year. Um, essentially, you know, referencing that they gathered a million documents and conducted 490 views. But at the end of the day. There's nothing there. There is nothing new. These substantive things were, one, either revealed and reported on by the Department of Justice Inspector General Mike Horowitz, or the you know, two failed prosecutions that he brought against Michael Sussman and Igor Danchenko. But at the very end of this long report, it culminates in literally one recommendation consisting of half a page recommending that the FBI or DOJ set up an in-house official who can challenge assumptions in very high-profile investigations. So that's it, taxpayer. That's that's what you get for your money, you know, a, a four-year, eight or nine million dollar editorial, essentially. And, you know, to say, you know, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say disappointed so much as, you know, aggravated and really just the the obscenity of the misuse of his office in what you know, Donald Trump wanted in what Bill Barr wanted. And after getting appointed in 2019, you know, you'll remember that Horowitz announced the findings of his look in 2019 and found that it was properly predicated. And, you know, John Durham, prosecutor, U.S. attorney, breaks 
generations of practice of U.S. attorneys and actually makes a statement saying, no, I disagree with the genesis of the investigations, you know, throwing out this, this kind of statement, even though he'd just begun, and then spent the next three years, four years, chasing that theory. And at the end of the day, you know, what it looks like, if you boil down his, you know, argument, it's like, well, the FBI should have opened a preliminary investigation instead of a full investigation. In other words, everything was done right, but he just wanted to call it something else. And, you know, keep in mind, he does, in the very same report, he mentions specifically a case out of the FBI's Washington field office that was opened on the Clinton Foundation solely on the basis of a book by the name of Clinton Cash, which was written by a guy named Peter Schweitzer. The book was financed. Literally, you can go on Wikipedia and look up Clinton Cash. It was bankrolled by the Mercers, a far-right, wealthy you know, set of donors, family of donors who give money to extreme causes and make, made use of researchers from an organization that Schweitzer and Steve Bannon put together. So Durham is fine with the FBI opening a case on the Clintons entirely on such crap, but something that comes from, I can now say it because John Durham got declassified, the Australian ambassador to the United Kingdom, a senior diplomat, he was the foreign minister of Australia, brings the FBI information saying, I personally met with George Papadopoulos, who said that somebody in the Trump campaign received an offer of uh, assistance from the government of Russia, that somehow it is inappropriate for the FBI to open that investigation. But meanwhile, this piece of oppo trash coming out of the right, looking at you know bogus allegations against Clinton is perfectly fine to open a case there. And well, you know, it should have been a full rather than a PI or not the other way around. Should have been a PI than a full. It's, it's complete crap. It's at odds with what Horowitz found back in 2019. There's nothing substantively new that was found since Horowitz issued his report in 2019. And, we, and then it goes through and it just like throws up crap. It is like a parade of right-wing unsupported causes that he goes through talking about like, you know, the Steele dossier. D Durham doesn't go quite so far as to saying it was false. He doesn't, he implies that it played a critical role at the beginning, but he doesn't ever say, hey, this had no role in opening Crossfire Hurricane. And at the end of the day, you know, there aren't, um, there's nothing new there. The one conviction he got of an attorney named Kevin Kleinsmith, which he pled, was based entirely on facts that were uncovered by Mike Horowitz. And Allison, I liked, you know, one of the things we were talking about before today's episode, you know, you, you were saying when it, it was clear that the report was coming, but it wasn't quite out yet. And you made the point of like, look, there's this New York Times reporting a couple of months ago that indicated that when Bill Barr on his government aircraft, his private jet, hopped in that jet for a round-the-world international junket with John Durham, because think again, how often and appropriate is it for an attorney general to go flying around the world to conduct sort of the uh, you know leather on the leather on the street, you know, gumshoe detective work? They go to the Italians <laughs> because Italian they're trying to leather gumshoe Itali Italian work. leather, fine leather, fine fine Corinthian like Corinthian Rich leather. Corinthian I guess leather. Is, <laughs> I guess that's North Africa, right? Corinthia, Corinthia was like modern day uh, Libya, maybe. Anyway, but. I love Italian how we letter. both go. We both go right there <laughs> to Ricardo Montalban. <laughs> so they go there because they're trying to track down the George Papadopoulos theory of the case, right? That that that, that Mifsu, this professor, was actually a deep state asset and was working at the behest of the FBI and or the CIA or and or the the Bilderbergers or the <laughs> the Illuminati. Somebody they go chasing this George theory, George Papadopoulos theory of the case. Now, mind you, if you read. John Durham's report, the the word, the name Mifsud does not appear once. In fact, not their once. trip to Italy does not appear once. But more importantly, Allison, to what you were looking for, the New York Times reported they go over there chasing this half-ass coffee boy conspiracy theory. They don't find that. But what they do find, according to the Washington Post, is the Italians come to them and say, hey, here are allegations about financial crimes committed by Donald Trump. And so, you know, they, they go there looking for a fucking unicorn and they f get a pile of like steaming Trump crap dumped in their lap. And according to the New York Times, rather than having anybody else investigate it, Durham or Barr says to Durham, hey, you look into this. Well, what became of and that? And the way that it was publicly re reported was, oh, 
Uh, Bill Barr now gives Durham uh, prosecutorial powers because of something he found in the investigation into the oranges of the Russia probe. And they it's the DOJ. I'm pretty sure the leak came from Barr there made it seem like, oh, you know, it's the Clintons. They did something uh, in Italy or whatever. They didn't even bring up any of it, uh, any detail, but they made it sound like it was because of the amazing work Durham was doing investigating the origins of the Russian probe that that now he's been given prosecutorial powers that he d- didn't previously have, which is weird because I'm pretty sure all special counsel gets that. But in regardless, what in actuality was happening was was Barr was giving Durham prosecutorial investigatory powers so that he could look into the Trump crime. Right. And, and Allison, I mean, I can tell you from setting up the Mueller special counsel office, anything you want to do about the tr- allegations of financial wrongdoing by Trump is going to be complex. I mean, his financial empire is so large. There is no way, there is no way a team the size of Durham's, which, I, you know, nobody's published how big it is, but I've been led to understand it's significantly smaller than what Mueller had. There's no way they have the investigative expertise to sit and do a complex review of the Trump, anything alleging sort of malfeasance by Trump in a financial environment. So, but, but you know, part of the special counsel regulation says, report what you investigated and found and whether or not you prosecuted it, explain why. Well, where's this allegation, right? Where's, where's any mention of it? Where's any sort of assurance that Barr did not specifically give it to Durham, just like he gave the other stuff with a particular political goal in mind, and that Durham deep-sixed it exactly as Barr wanted it. So, you know, whether that comes out, um, you know, Jim Jordan has invited uh, Durham to appear next week. I'm sure that'll be a lot of fun. Uh, And I'm I'm certain folks like, you know, our friends, Representative Goldman and uh, Plasky and others will do a, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, do a fine job of teasing out potentially some of those details. But, you know, going through this, and it's frustrating, I need to sit there and decide whether I, you know, write down like some long list of observations about the problems of the report. But one of the things in there that I found particularly aggravating, Durham mentions that he's thanking everybody at the beginning, right? He thanks Merrick Garland for not getting involved and letting him do his job. He thanks the, you know, all these different components of the, you know, technical folks and admin folks at the FBI and DOJ. And one of the things he says is that, you know, and FBI employees, most of whom agreed to be interviewed. And for those that didn't, he thanks FBI leadership for intervening to con- essentially convince them to sit down for an interview. Now we you need to we need to step back for a second. And it goes to exactly what you were saying about the difference between, you know, what was Durham? Was it a criminal investigation? Was it an administrative review? And you know, the and criminal investigations people are familiar with, right? That's what U.S. attorneys' offices do. They work with agents. They investigate crimes and violations of federal law. If they find violations of federal law, they take that evidence and they obtain a charging document and they take it to trial. On the other side, administratively, if there's sort of like, you know, wrongdoing or, you know, indications that something has gone wrong or in need of reform, well, that's why you have inspectors general. That's why you have internal inspection divisions, people that go out and can look at various things and compel. And the difference is, in this case, you can compel people. You can say, hey, look. You know, you have to sit down and talk to us. You must sit down and give us an interview. And, you know, on the one hand, and if you don't, you're going to lose your job. But because it is a compelled interview, employees maintain the ability not to be prosecuted for that. Courts have decided that, look, you know, if you're going to compel an employee to talk, A, they must talk or be fired. But B, you can't fire them or you can't if they sit down and they talk about you know, wrongdoing and implicate themselves, you can't use that against them because you can compel them. So they're they're two different, it's like apples and oranges. And you don't want to combine those two because on the on the criminal side, because you are talking about the ability to like use somebody's statement against them and their right to not uh, sort of inculpate themselves, the protections about compelled interviews are very, very strong on the criminal prosecution side. Well, the problem is, you know, Durham's got, he's, he's so deeply on the fence, he's got splinters in his ass because on the one hand, he's trying to sit there <laughs> and bring these half-assed prosecutions. 
on the other side, he this, you know, half of this report is written like some meandering, you know, sort of quasi IG review, but why it's really important in the context of those those FBI employees who didn't know if they wanted to interview with him and were told, encouraged, quote unquote, by the FBI leadership to sit down with him. Okay, well, is that is that a voluntary interview? It sure doesn't sound like it. If FBI leadership sits down with you and says, hey, you really, I know you don't want to talk to him, but you really need to, that's not really voluntary. And if that's not voluntary, anything they said in there certainly can't be used against them. And there are a couple of court cases, one by the name of Garrity, one by the name of Conkeens. And you'll you'll hear things like Conkeens warning or Garrity concerns. And that just talks about this. If people make a statement that is compelled, it can't be used against them. But were those precedents followed by Durham? Were any of those interviews used in the course of the Sussman or Danchenko investigations? Good question. I hope he gets that asked that next week. And a good example of that, there's if you go back, I think it was 2009, a series of Blackwater guards were engaged in, um, I think it was Tahrir Square, where they opened fire on a group of Iraqis mm -hmm. and killed a number of people. In the course of that investigation, Department of State investigators directed, I think it was the Blackwater contractors, but it might have been other like Foreign Service Nationals or, or, or State Department employees, you must interview with us, right? You are, We are compelling you. You must sit down and talk to us and give us a statement. And then when they started saying things like, yeah, you know, I, I you know, opened fire or I saw Fred open fire, all of a sudden they're making these statements that then later the government tried to use in the criminal trial. And the judge threw the complete thing, out, the whole thing out because of that. He said, look, you can't, on the one hand, compel them to make these statements at the threat of the loss of their job, and then on the other hand, try and use it in a criminal setting. So we know Durham was pursuing criminal trials or prosecutions. He pursued three. Two of them flopped. But there's just a lot of this fast and loose sort of playing with the facts, playing with the rules, and it's just aggravating to to page through it. I've I, I'm going to sit down and read each and every page. I've scanned all of it, but it just uh, you know I need to take little bites because it aggravates me each bite. <laughs> yeah, and it's not really well written either. Uh, just to, as an aside, but yeah, there's just tons of stuff missing from here. Um, Empty Wheel does a really good thread on it on Twitter. I would encourage you to check that thread out. Um, I wanted to know more about, uh, you know, who's Simone Mangianti. Uh, that would have been nice to to learn. Uh, but th th uh, by the way, that was uh, Papadopoulos's um, fiance, and nobody really knew where she was from. I think I know, but anyway. Um, Please, Allison, <laughs> that's an Italian. That's more of that Italian. That's an Italian accent. It's a Sicilian <laughs> accent. It certainly isn't a Slavic or dare I say it, Russian accent. It's and, not and, at all Russian. Not, not it's at totally all. Russian. Yeah, and obviously this is tongue in cheek. If you haven't heard her speak, yeah, uh, look her and up I'm and... just wondering how how many times she's been on Darapaska's yacht with Nastya Rybka. I'm just a question. <laughs> I, I just have que I <laughs> I have questions. Just asking like the questions. Just the... asking questions. Just Body Ventura. Uh, but I do think it's important that we say, you know, Merrick Garland attached a letter saying, here it is in its entirety. I didn't change it. I'm not spinning it. I'm not going to go do a press conference on on the release of this report. I'd like nothing. It was it's the absolute opposite of what Bill Barr did to the Mueller investigation. Uh, he And there's no redaction, like nothing, uh, you know, because as we know, it was found later by Judge Reggie Walton that uh, many of the redactions of the Mueller report made by Bill Barr were considered inappropriate. They had been have since been lifted uh, because he was trying to downplay the scope and the breadth of the of the Russian interference in our elections uh, at, at the behest of Donald Trump, no doubt. All right. Um, given all that, um, we have more news to get to. Uh, and, you know, I almost feel bad that we spent that much time even talking about the Durham report. And as much as I want to go into it and explain how all of it's wrong, I just feel like it doesn't deserve any more attention. It's going to end up in our rearview mirrors as a laughing stock investigation that wasted money. I mean, at least the Mueller probe paid for itself with asset forfeiture like five times over. Uh, but but here we are. And now we're that we're out that tax money. Why isn't anybody bringing this up in the negotiations on the debt ceiling with McCarthy? I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, maybe we can try to get that money back somewhere else besides work requirements. Uh, we have to take a quick break. We're going to be right back where we have a lot more news to discuss. Stick around. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I have some more patrons to give a shout out to. Thanks to Heather Beaudry, Estelle Gabriel, Deb, Mummy Rose, Hope Jones, Lori Higgins, Lisa, Kate Black. Just here to hear Pete swear. There you go. <laughs> Mitch, Mitch Seipt, Kim Leslie, Robin Guyman. Rachel Broderick. I'm sorry if I mispronounced any of those names, but thank you again. You, you make the show possible. Now, Pete, uh, as we've been waiting for a response to Trump's 51-page lawsuit trying to block the special purpose grand jury report, we're down in Georgia now, Fulton County, with the district attorney, Fonnie Willis, and Trump's 51-page lawsuit trying to block the special grand jury report, quash indictments, remove Fonnie Willis as the prosecutor. Her response was due May 15th. And we have it. So let's take a look. It opens up with the DA's office reminding us what Trump was asking for in his 51-page lawsuit. He wanted to quash and expunge the special purpose grand jury final report. He wanted all evidence in it to be suppressed so it couldn't be used in future proceedings. And he wanted the DA to be disqualified from this and any further investigation or prosecution. So. That's sort of the, the ask, and this is what uh, Fonnie Willis is responding. She's saying, um, no, we just deny all these motions, dismiss or deny, whatever you feel like. Uh, and then we, of course, know the fraudulent elector Kathy Latham has joined the Trump lawsuit and added her own motions to quash the report in its entirety and join any state entity from utilizing any evidence or testimony in the report. And she requested a hearing and that the matter actually be given to another judge. <laughs> a couple of things to, to realize. One, there's a really, really high standard you have to meet if you want to have a prosecutor removed. And I don't think there's, from what I've seen from legal experts who are familiar with the Georgia state law, there's very little chance that this is going to succeed on its merits. And as far as, you know, these other, these sort of me too, like, well, you know, <laughs> I don't want it to be used from by any state entity for any evidence or testimony, and just there's, there's a lot of feels, but there's not a lot of law. So I don't know that there's going to be, I, I have a, a strong suspicion that this uh, Trump's lawsuit is going to fall, and as well as Latham's, is going to fall quite flat. Um, the good news is that, you know, because we have the the sort of system of justice that we do, we get to see 
And Fonnie Willis responds and says, look, no, this is absolutely wrong. Here are all the reasons why. We can sit there and understand just how absurd and ridiculous what Trump is trying to do with his lawsuit. So, you know, my hope is that all of the motions are either going to get dismissed or denied. I think, you know, we will see whatever the court's reasoning is. We'll see that whenever they issue the order. But, I, you know, the main thing here is time. You know, this is I don't know that Trump has any real expectation of success. This is for him, though absolutely another opportunity to throw a little sand in the gears, add a month, add two months, add three months into the process, which just pushes this case further down the line. Uh, I don't think the court's going to have a lot of toleration for it. And so I would expect to see a fairly uh, quick turnaround uh, from the court. Yeah. And I'll go even as far as saying that most of these, if not all of these, will be dismissed or denied on the three main things that are that Trump accusations are always dismissed and denied on standing, jurisdiction and lack of harm. Uh, you know, and just absolute lack of sense, lack of lack, <laughs> lack of law. That, that as well. I mean, they don't even have any they can't back anything up. So this is what the D.A. argues. Um, first of all, they have no standing. Right. Um, like you said, to, for, for, for you to come in, uh, Kathy Latham, for example, and say no one in the state can do this, uh, that, that there's just no standing to do that. They failed to demonstrate unconstitutionality. There's nothing ambiguous or vague about the law in Georgia. They failed to meet the exacting standards, Pete, that you mentioned to remove the DA from the case. They come they fall. They don't they have no argument on that. They just don't like her. Uh, they failed to demonstrate that the special purpose grand jury was tainted, you know, or that somehow their constitutional due process rights were uh, messed up there. So there's no harm there, right? That falls into that third category. And they provide no basis to give this to another judge at, at all. There's no basis. There's no it, like, and the great thing about this is like, if you want to really get to the merits, here's why they all suck. And here's the case law. But we don't even have to get there because there's no standing. There's no injury here. There's no harm. And there's 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 no jurisdiction. The court doesn't have this court doesn't have jurisdiction to be able to say that no state entity can use anything in this special grand uh, purpose grand jury report. So I think that some of these will be denied on standing. Uh, some will be denied on jurisdictional issues and uh, the rest, if we, you know, they just don't have, they've made no reasonable argument in the law uh, and they've shown no injury. Like you, you, you have to, if you're suing somebody that you have to prove that you're being injured uh, and they, they've failed to do that on multiple uh, motions in, in this particular lawsuit. So I think that we'll see a pretty quick turnaround from uh, it's Judge Juan Marchand on this case. And I think that uh, these will all be summarily dismissed or denied. And and she even said, you can dismiss or deny whatever you feel like that day is is fine with us. Uh, so <laughs> I think, uh, you know, like I said, that's the, the, those are my predictions on how this will go. And I'm assuming by the time we record our bonus episode this weekend for cleanup on all 45 for patrons, that we'll have our answer uh, to this, to this lawsuit. I, although I'm not sure, I don't think there is a reply on the schedule. I think this is the final filing uh, for consideration, at least to get a hearing. Um, and we'll see, maybe they get a hearing so that they, you know, for due process purposes, so the judge can hear the arguments from both sides before he dismisses everything whole cloth. But I would imagine, uh, because I've seen a lot of these, the reason that Trump is so successful in delaying these cases by month, two months, three months, uh, by filing these ridiculous lawsuits that have no merit and no basis and no standing and no jurisdiction, uh, is is because the judges really want to go out of their way, particularly in these high-profile, politically charged cases, to to put the due process in place so that whatever comes out of this investigation, the charging uh, decisions that are going to come out between July 11th and September 1st, will hold up on appeal. Right. Because you don't want Trump to come back and say, I never got to argue uh, about my uh, tremendous lawsuit, my perfect lawsuit. I never got to <laughs> argue it. Uh, and you don't want that to have to uh, like overturn the convictions, go back and then settle those and then redo the convictions. And that's, I think, what they're trying to avoid. And that's why he's so, so successful at delaying these two to three months. He knows because he's the former president and that these are high profile cases that they have to cross their T's and dot their I's when it, come, when it comes to due process. Because, you know, it's all, all part of the, if you're going to aim for the king, you best not miss type situation. So we'll see how it pans out. 
Uh, we'll see if a hearing is granted. I tend to think not. And I think most of these motions will be dismissed. But who knows? We'll see. Yep. Looking forward to it. I mean, it, it'll. I'll be pleased uh, if you're right and we get something that fast, but I don't think in any case it's going to take much longer. I mean, if it takes more than by the end of this week, it won't take a lot longer. And hopefully the judge is already thinking about the arguments that Fonnie Pro Willis provided. And this is just, you know, nice corroboration, but um, I agree with you. I don't, I don't think they're going to uh, stand the test of judicial scrutiny. Yeah, no, not at all. All right, everybody, we have some uh, Jim Jordan shenanigans to report on and some uh, Jim Comer, the two Jims uh, <laughs> shenanigans, the Jim shenanigans to report on. But we have to take a quick break. So stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes and they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, welcome back. Allison, before we get on to the next topic, I do want to, you know, come for the news, stay for the odd cultural reference. As it turns out, Corinth is a city, an ancient city uh, in Greece. It separated the mainland of Greece from the Peloponnese. Why that's important is in the context of fine Corinthian leather, turns out that is entirely made up. The advertising agency Bozell in 1974 came up with the term to describe leather upholstery used in certain Chrysler luxury vehicles. And though a merely a marketing concept, according to Wikipedia, it suggested a premium product, quote, something rich in quality, rare and luxurious, much as what you would expect Bill From Barr, Bill Barr to on his, leather investigation his shoe leather in Italy. and spats, which he puts on <laughs> when he does go out on the town to conduct investigation with foreign liaison personnel. Anyway, just wanted to... Yeah, uh, unless he's appearing at Texas A&M and then he puts on his spurs, right? <laughs> I don't want to know what he does when he's deep in the heart of Texas. That sounds like something, you know, some oddness that this is a family show, Allison, and we don't want to... Don't, don't go there. Uh, anyway. Okay, so, fine. So, fair, so, fair enough. <laughs> All right. With that clear about Corinthian leather, let's get back to uh, <laughs> back to the news. But first, even more patrons to thank. This is amazing, and I just can't thank all of you enough uh, for your support and uh, allowing us to do everything that we do. So, to Mitchell Johnson, to M W, Jan Rotkiss, Shelby, Karen McGlynn, C at L Rocks, Chris K, Venomous Feminist, Sassy and Smartassy. Deborah Welsh, Deborah Wazinski, and Gwendolyn Walton, 
thank all of you. Just uh, amazing mm-hmm. support and and thank all of you for uh, allowing us again to to put this podcast together every week. So <laughs> unsurprisingly, the Republicans on the House Oversight Committee have released their report onto the, their investigation into President Biden and his family. And unfortunately, much like the Durham report, there's not much to discuss. There's an amazing uh, article, if only for the photograph that accompanies it, from Luke Broadwater at the New York Times, which notes that after four months of investigation, House Republicans who promised to use their new majority to unearth evidence of wrongdoing by President Biden acknowledged last Wednesday that they had yet to uncover incriminating material about him, despite their frequent insinuations that he and his family have been involved in criminal conduct and corruption. Now, the report says that some of the president's relatives were paid more than $10 million from foreign sources between 2015 and 2017, and they claim that's proof of what they're calling influence peddling. Well, you know, I got to say, $10 million over the course of two years? That's influence peddling? Influence peddling? Great, great. Let's, Let's keep that in mind. And if that $10 million represents influence peddling, tell me what $2 billion to Jared Kushner from MBS represents. So, you know, $10 million in influence peddling, 210, right, 200 times that? Yeah, 200 times that. What does that represent to the president's son-in-law? Just asking, <laughs> just asking questions. And so, you know, we go and let's, you know, continue down the list. Let's go mm, Apollo and Citigroup. Their meetings in the Oval Office and, you know, eventually paying off uh, Kushner mortgages or financial concerns. Let's talk about Michael Cohen's yeah, essential- his Fifth Avenue building, right? It, it, oh, and, and and by the way, I have to I have to remind you, Pete. This little list that I just threw together, this is just off the top of my head. This is I could actually probably come up with a much longer list here. Yeah, and it's you know exactly right. And I'm going through, and I'm like, oh well, you, you didn't think of that. And there's this thing, but like you know, Michael Cohen's essential consulting slush fund, the hundred and eight million dollar inaugural. Trump's secret Chinese bank account, $10 million from Erdogan to, you know, well, I don't want to, you you said that. I'm not going to confirm or deny whether or not that happened and who it was from. You know, Ivanka's Chinese trademarks. <laughs> we, we've heard about the Jolo and Broidy's $75 million to stop a probe into them. Binkowski and Rudy. Let's talk about the Trump International Hotel and every foreign delegation that came into town who got suites of rooms there while they were visiting. I, you're right. This is not, this is nothing that, you or I sat down and kind of did a diligent search going through business reporting. These are just like 10, however many that is, 10, 11 things just sort of off the top of your head. So some notion now that the Republicans sitting there on Wednesday saying, hey, we found proof in this $10 million, which they concede, nothing illegal about it. But they said, hey, you know, we have yet to find evidence of a specific corrupt action Biden took in connection with any of the business deals that his son entered into. After we've all heard about this for months and months and months, still haven't come up with any evidence of a specific yeah. corrupt action. And let me and let me just find that, you know, the Comer, they've been looking into this since January uh, whatever. There has been an ongoing, almost five-year-long investigation by David Weiss, who uh, was appointed by Trump and assigned by Bill Barr to investigate Hunter's business dealings. And all they found in this four years, and they haven't even brought charges yet, it seemed like a, the the whole thing sort of wrapped up a year ago, according to public reporting, this, this David Weiss uh, investigation into Hunter Biden. Um, and there have been no charges, which makes me think, I mean, this reminds me a lot of when they were trying real hard to get a grand jury to indict Andy McCabe, uh, for making false statements. And, and, and then they went to a second grand jury and they still couldn't secure an indictment. And I'm, and I, you know, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, you keep trying, but you know, wow, if you can't get a federal grand jury to issue an indictment, you don't have a case. I mean, you, it's really the standard is probable cause uh, to issue that indictment. They'll indict a ham sandwich, as we've heard a million times. But so four years, almost five years, nothing. It seems like it stopped about a year ago. And all they've been able to come up with were some unpaid taxes, which have since been paid, and a possible gun charge. And this is actually a serious charge. You're lying on a form saying you you weren't using drugs in order to get a permit to carry a firearm. Uh, and that, you know, is weird that the Republicans would be um, cheering on them coming for uh, anybody's guns. But 
you know, that could be a potential charge here. And I have said, and I have long said, look, if you find crimes, first of all, to, to talk about predication to open an investigation, this was purely political. Uh, I mean, we know that he was, you know, Trump was trying to get uh, Ukraine, uh, Zelensky, to open an investigation into the Bidens, just just for the appearance. You don't even have to really investigate. Just open it up. We know he was trying to get his Department of Justice uh, after uh, the election loss to to look into voter fraud. Like, you don't have to do just say you're investigating it. And me and the Republicans in Congress will do the rest. Just the appearance of the invest. Just say you're investigating. And here we have, oh, we're going to investigate Hunter Biden. Of course, it's because of for political reasons. So let's talk about weaponization another day, Jim Jordan. But, you know, here now we've got four years, a gun charge, maybe. I don't think they'll bring tax charges if they do. This whole thing was predicated on uh, for political reasons. But as I've said, if he broke the law, fine. Take him to court. See if you can get a conviction sentence him and and have him uh, do his time. But, you know, to 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 pretend that the weaponization is all on one side uh, is just absolutely ridiculous. And how much money has been spent on this four year bullshit investigation, you know, I, I, of a private citizen? It's and, and I promise you, had Weiss uh, this, you know, this investigation of Hunter Biden found any financial corrupt transactions that had to do with anybody else in the family or anybody uh, in the Biden administration, when, and this was, by the way, when he was the vice president, it would have come out. There would be an investigation. There would be, if there was crimes, there would be charges. There's nothing here, just like in the Durham probe. Yeah, and there's, look, there's a reasonableness about what DOJ should or shouldn't do. This this alleged you know crime of lying on the gun form happened in 2018. So that's five years ago. And I think what you're saying is, you know, certainly a little bit more of an aggressive posture on the part of Hunter Biden's attorneys to start making some noise about like, look, how long does this man need to sit in limbo waiting to find out whether or not you're going to issue charges? You're not, by all accounts, you know, this again, this this lie, if it occurred, happened five years ago. You don't need, it's not like you're actively investigating that crime as it unfolded yesterday. You've done it. You were talking about charging it last year. So much like Andy, much like all of us, me included, who were sitting there while Durham was taking his four years saying, oh, you're going to jail, you're going to Guantanamo. Uh, at, at some point, there hits a unreasonable point in time where, to out of fairness, DOJ needs to make a decision. And, and I'm with you. If people broke the law, charge them, try them. And if a jury finds that they did, then they need that punishment. But to sit here just... Apparently, I don't know what's going on, but waiting and waiting and waiting for anybody. There comes a point where it's like enough. You know, why why should I have my life in limbo? Why should I be worried? Why should my family be worried about what is or isn't going to happen to me? Why should employers be asking whether or not I'm in fact going to be indicted and going to jail? At some point, make up your mind and pay the political consequences to whichever side is going to be unhappy with your decision. Because nobody, one side is going to be unhappy. There is no outcome here that one side is, you know, both sides are pleased. So follow the law. Assess what evidence you have from these four years you've been investigating, apparently a fact that happened five years ago, and decide. Because we're halfway through May. (laughs) Yeah, and it's not a special counsel probe. Uh, Because this isn't under special counsel regulations, the the DOJ doesn't have to announce uh, their declination to prosecute or give any reasons why, although... Because this is a high-profile case, if they do decline to prosecute, I might expect to see, uh, much like they did with Rudy Giuliani and, and the raid on his place where they decided they weren't going to uh, press any charges, I would expect to see some sort of an announcement like that, or at least we're not going to, and maybe not specifically say why, but they don't have to. Uh, and I I mean, this is Weiss. This is a Trump appointee. He might decide to just sort of take his crayons and go home. Um, and, and not really say anything about it after what I consider to be a complete failure of an investigation that shouldn't have been opened in the first place and the opening of which is true and honest weaponization of the Department of Justice. Just my two cents. Yeah, I think you're right, Allison. I mean, I would not anticipate DOJ because exactly as you said, there he is not a special counsel. And there's not an obligation to create a report. I don't exp- If they don't charge... I don't expect that they would announce that publicly. I do expect they would tell Hunter Biden's attorneys 
we've closed our case or it's not it was something to let them know it's done and that you very quickly would hear that right an announcement that you know uh you know u.s attorney weiss informed us that hunter biden is no longer a subject of whatever it is but that it when and if we hear about a non-prosecution it won't come via that route so again mm -hmm. it's it's we're summer we're we're the summer of 2023 decide let's 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 move on here well, I think the statute of limitations would force their hand at some point. I mean, you know, this is, like you said, almost a five-year crime. And I think that that's a five-year statute of limitations. At least that is true for most federal federal cases. But I also don't know when they found out about it. And uh, yeah, you know, that, that there's gets... other mitigating factors. It, gets, it can get weird. Um, exactly. Right. If something, if there's some indication that Hunter or people around him lied about it, it could toll or, you know, I would need to research it some. But say he, when first asked about it, said that he didn't do something or that he did do something and they're concerned that he, you know, in the context of that false application, he later made a false statement or obstructed something. You can, you can lengthen that out. But again, we're, we're getting way deep into speculation about stuff that nobody knows outside of uh, yep. DOJ. All right. Well, we'll see how it, uh, we'll see how it shakes out. I imagine at some point soon we'll hear um, something or maybe nothing. I'm not sure. Uh, but again, it's the investigation's been over for a year now, ongoing for three years prior to that. And we still don't have any charges. We'll see. Uh, all right. We're going to take uh, one more quick break. And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about Comer uh, and his uh, informant to his whistleblower uh, <laughs> and uh, whose name is George Glass. Uh, it's my boyfriend from Canada. You wouldn't know him. Uh, and also uh, Pomerantz's uh, opening statement and, and behind closed doors testimony to the same committee. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA as a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. All right, everybody, we're back. And here's our last group of new patrons this week. Thank you so much again. And, and so many people responding, Pete, to your rants, your, your <laughs> swear-laced rants. Um, I love this. We had to, so many, we had to split them up into four groups. So thank you to Dana Fortier, Sally Russell, Waverly Ford, Florence Rothenberg, Paula Fries, Isle of Peach Truck, Wheel of Peach Truck, <laughs> Rigging Engineer, Cranes Not Elections, <laughs> a rigging engineer, <laughs> Cranes Not Elections. Awesome. Sharon Halstead, uh, Julie Cradle, Leah Robbins, Christy Sider, and Marsha Ford. Thank you again so much. You make the show possible. All right, Pete. 
Uh, let's talk about what's going on with uh, Jim Comer's whistleblower <laughs> informant, who now is apparently missing. They've lost track of him. Uh, he could be in jail. He said most <laughs> of their informants are either in jail or on the lam or uh, spies, I guess. And so they're hard to find. I'm uh, okay. I, I, su- I swear there is a there is a small house on Capitol Hill where folks like Comer as well as Chuck Grassley and Ron Johnson go to the small row house and I envision it like some Mel Brooks movie and it's got a big shingle out front that says Republican informants and whistleblowers. And it's just, you know, the the oddest group of non-credible shenanigans that you could imagine uh, that, yes, he's he's they've lost their top witness. Gone. Poof. Out into the air or the void. So I guess so. So the first I think it came up was an interview that he conducted with Maria Bartiromo, and she it's it's a fantastic back and forth. I mean, again, feels like a, a, a Brooks movie. She says you have spoken with the whistleblowers. You also spoke with an informant who gave you all of this information. Where's that informant today? Where are these whistleblowers? Comer responds, "Well, unfortunately, we can't track down the informant." We're hopeful that the informant is still there. The whistleblower knows the informant. The whistleblower who knows about the informant is very credible. So I <laughs> added a little bit. So, I mean, it's this this absurd notional game of who's on first where they have yet <laughs> to produce a single bit of evidence, let alone a name of some informant or whistleblower. And then Comer comes back on Monday and he says, well, 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 well. there's an informant. The one that the committee lost touch with isn't related to the committee's demand that the FBI hand over internal investigative notes about President Joe Biden, which presumably came from a different informant. So now it, it is truly a there's a whistleblower, there's informant. It is different from the informant that provided information to the FBI about some unrelated matter. None of these people providing a single bit of hard information that the Republicans have been able to produce. And you yeah, know, or use of, for anything. You know, Right. And in some of it, so so uh, Jessica Collins, the communication communications director for the House Oversight Committee, told Time in an email that, quote, <laughs> to clear all this up, of course, the whistleblower who has come forward about the FBI record alleging that then Vice President Joe Biden engaged in a bribery scheme with the foreign national isn't missing. Continuing, Comer actually, quote, was referring to another whistleblower regarding the Biden's family influence peddling schemes. So clear, right? Everybody, we now know exactly what, you know, the the odd parade of hamsters on, you know, sort of spinning wheels in Comer's head as he tries and explain to explain uh, the 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 scheme of wrongdoing by President Joe Biden and his family is getting muddier <laughs> cat by the very... day. And the cat is cat is like, yes, I, I see <laughs> The cat this. has strong opinions I, I on have feelings and he's a moron. Well, They're all what morons. The cat knows, <laughs> what the cat knows is that, you know, recently, and, and we talked to uh, Congressman Goldman about this, there, there were witness interviews of three of their quote-unquote whistleblowers, and they found that these whistleblowers were paid cash money and given jobs by, by folks like Kash Patel uh, in order to become whistleblowers. And and it also reminds me of Rudy's band of misfit election fraud affidavit signers, uh, you know, uh, Carone and, and the like, uh, all of whom ended up on Saturday Night Live. So the question of the day... Pete, is who is going to play this informant to the whistleblower on the cold opening of the next season of Saturday Night Live? <laughs> I, well, I would somebody like John Riley, I think would be, John C. Riley would be great. <laughs> and the thing, you know, in just the use of the word, I feel dirty using the word whistleblowers. They're not whistleblowers, at least not in the context of the people we've seen coming forward about malfeasance at the FBI. They are disgruntled employees many of whom had performance problems, many of whom did not believe that January 6th was a thing and were conscientious objectors about going out and arresting people who stormed the Capitol as part of an insurrection. So let's not, let's let's pump the brake a little bit on the use of uh, the term whistleblowers because I just, it, that's not what they are. And yeah, I mean, well, the other thing too is is that if this whistleblower who's, who and the, the informant to the whistleblower is who's missing, 
but you can't be a whistle. Whistleblowers have direct knowledge. Whistleblowers don't have teams of informants that inform them and then they blow the whistle. That's not how whistleblowing works. Um, <laughs> so, and if, if these whistleblowers aren't even within the government and they're in jail or first of all, if they're in jail, they should be easy to find an interview. Uh, but if they're in jail or they're arms dealers or they're spies um, and you can't get a hold of them, that doesn't sound to me like you have a very credible uh, informant or whatever you want to call them. It, it just to me, it sounds like somebody said some squirrely shit, probably Russian disinformation. The Republicans are very good at, at bringing Russian disinformation into congressional hearings. Uh, we saw Ron Johnson do it. We saw Rudy do it with his little manila envelope uh, that he sent to House um, Republicans back in the day, Nunes and all that. Um, but, you know, it sounds like some guy heard from some other guy that there was some Biden bribery or peddling influence happening and and went to the FBI and wrote uh, gave a statement and the FBI said yeah cool thanks bro and you know maybe they looked into it probably and found nothing and then that's the end but the other thing that really surprised me is when everybody all now all the right wing media pundits are saying uh, the FBI is refusing to hand over this document written by the whistleblower informed on by the informant who's now missing dead or in jail or out doing spy stuff and you know i i just think that I mean, the whole thing is just so, just just so ridiculous, Pete. That 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 there's it just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I I don't know what your thoughts are on on that piece of it. Well, it it it's horribly, you know, both incompetent as well as transparently political. I mean, you know, this is the same group that God we heard for years from Devin Nunez about the Steele dossier and Kash Patel and all the malfeasance that was going. I mean, this is. This is a tenth as credible as anything that was put together by Steele and the subsources. And so, you know, on this, you know, now that that is back in the news, you know, and a question about, you know, whether or not that was true, not true, verified, not verified, this doesn't hold a candle, these things that to, to that, these, you know, sources and information that Republicans claim to have. And again, they, they are so bad at their job. They're sitting there building the anticipation, hyping this up, getting ready for the big game. Everybody sit down, get your pizza, get your, you know, beer, get your game face on. We're going to sit down and you turn on the TV to watch the kickoff. And it's just a bunch of moping folks with no information, a missing whistleblower, a missing informant, a known whistleblower that they still know where it is, but they're talking about a different. I mean, it's just all there's nothing. Well, there. And this is the M.O. Because when you whenever you ask, I know this. Okay, and and members of Congress should certainly know this. If you ask the FBI for a document, they're not going to confirm or deny its existence, and they're not going to give it to you. And of course, they use that to say the deep state's hiding it. And it's like, no, you should know when you go in to a request like that that that's going to be the answer a thousand times out of a thousand times. That's the answer. And then to take it a step further, in a letter written back to this, uh, you know, uh, committee by uh, the FBI, is it's like, look, even if we could confirm or deny the existence of this report from the whatever you, whistleblower you're, you're calling uh, a whistleblower, if it's part of an open and ongoing investigation, you still wouldn't be able to have it. Um, and no, and no ju uh, judicial watch, no Tom Fitton, you can't have it either under FOIA because it's part of an open and ongoing investigation, which is, had been going on into Hunter Biden for the last four years. So it it's disingenuous. They make things up and then they point at the deep state when it's, they, it, you know, when the FBI won't produce these documents or, or confirm their existence, um, which is policy, longstanding policy on what happens when you ask for these kinds of of documents. Uh, we've seen it time and again, and they'll continue to do it. And it, I mean, it's, it's their, it's the way that they muddy the water, right? Like, give us this document. I can't confirm or deny its existence. You're covering up for the Bidens. Yeah. And, and, and it'll just continue. Right. It, it's part of the game. And the problem is the, the, the production value of this game is horrible. And so, you know, if you, <laughs> if done well, you can know and anticipate what you're not going to get. And you have built into your script, okay, we know that FBI and DOJ are going to come back and you say you can't have it. So that's fine. We'll make a big stink about that. We've got three kind of, you know, witnesses, quote unquote, witnesses that we think will be compelling that, you know, we can get our point across. But they, it's somehow like they should know all of that. 
and they don't. And so it's like watching, you know, it, it's going from, you know, if again, I, I hated the Benghazi hearings, but those were done. I mean, they weren't particularly clever, but at least they were effective. I mean, there was a real, you know, the drip, <laughs> drip, drip that they talked about trying to erode away support for Hillary Clinton. It worked. This ain't working. So, I, you no, know, I, no. which I guess is good. Great. They're doing the same with Pomerantz too, right? They finally got Pomerantz to agree to come into an interview. The DA said, okay. And then Pomerantz in his opening statement is like, I'm not going to answer any questions about the investigation, ongoing or previous investigations. Uh, and by the way, the Manhattan DA is talking about potential criminal liability on my part for writing that book that I wrote. So I'm not going to answer any questions about the book because I'm going to use my Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination because of this potential sort of Damocles charges that could come down from the Manhattan DA against me. So you're not going to get anything interesting out of me. Uh, and then, of course, the Republicans use that as a deep state cover up. They're not being forthcoming. We want transparency uh, when all of that is, first of all, his right to do uh, plead the fifth. Um, because of a pretending, uh, p uh, pending or potential criminal investigation or criminal charges brought against him for releasing the book. I don't think that'll happen, but it's still within his rights. Uh, and, uh, you know, for him to say, I'm, I'm not going to tell you anything because he, he was able to have a lawyer there. That was one of the conditions that Jim Jordan caved to. I'm not going to tell you anything about any open and ongoing investigation. Not nothing. Uh, and that is policy, longstanding due process, constitutional policy, it could be bad for Trump as a criminal defendant for me to come out and taint a jury like that. And you want me to tell you all the bad shit Trump did and taint the jury so that he, you know, so that he can't have a fair trial? Uh, no, I'm not going to do it. So there we are. Yeah, again, you know, Pomerantz is no dummy. I think we had yet more confirmation of that and that, you know, he protected himself. He did protect the things that were going on. He utterly stymied Jordan. And so, you know, it's... One more, one more sitting there holding an empty bag, you know, presumably that whatever was in it is sitting there next to a suit coat that he left back in Ohio. And it's not, <laughs> it's, it's, it's neither surprising nor particularly uh, helpful from a political standpoint for the Republicans. But, you know, I, I don't think he said, you know, well, we're going to keep pursuing this. I don't, I don't, Jordan, that is, I don't know that he's going to get anything down this particular path. No, me neither. All right. Well, that is our show uh, for today. Thank you again very much for listening yeah, to Clean Up 100%. on All 45. Thanks so much to our patrons. Um, we'll be back, Pete and I and the cat, uh, this weekend for a <laughs> bonus episode for patrons who are at the $2 level. And uh, I'm sure it will be filled with uh, all sorts of fun profanity. Uh, <laughs> we just... we. Uh, uh, given what happened last week, I think the floodgates are open, and I, I think well, this, uh, yeah, Allison, this is the the weekly hour up on Apple Podcasts is the family version. The you know the the bonus episode is the, the Blue Pete, as somebody said, is the uh, more kind of Friday night with a cocktail, <laughs> uh, be a little more casual in our discussion, <laughs> particularly when they're morons suitable suitable for swearing at. I've been the comedian for ten years. I told dick jokes for ten years, and you were like blowing me away with you. <laughs> <laughs> so like, there's not a role. There's the cop. There's the <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you so much again to our patrons. You make the show possible. Thanks to everyone for listening. You make things happen as well. Um, share this podcast with your friends and family if you're enjoying it. We really appreciate you. And we'll see you next week. I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Struck. And this is Clean Up on Aisle 45. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van 
with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th. Or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.